G'day listeners, welcome to Creatures of the Industry Summer Specials. Today, and again on the 7th of January, we will be covering for the Concrete Gang while they have a very short summer break. These two programs will cover issues raised in the publication Never Powerless, produced by the BLF History Group in 2015. They also provide a valuable introduction to the rest of our summer specials over January and February. Then from the 25th of February, our Series 6 interviews will be resumed. Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete forests to back our log of flame. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel proud. And welcome to Creatures of the Industry, doing our summer edition, hovering for the concrete gang while they have their, they say, well-earned Christmas break. So this morning we are going to deal with uh, some history items, and joining me are Malcolm McDonald. Good morning, Malcolm. How are you? Dave Kerrin. Good morning, Dave. And Brian Boyd. Good morning. And these gentlemen were part of the BLF History Study Group and uh, were responsible for a little booklet called Never Powerless. Now, that particular booklet was uh, also an opportunity for Normie Wallace, the late and great Normie Wallace, to make a contribution to the recording of the history of all the struggles while he was both a member and an official of the BLF. So this is a little bit of a tribute show as well as trying to cover a whole lot of history which can be easily forgotten. Brian. Ralph, um, yes, over uh, 10 years ago there was a group of people who were associated with the um, the building industry back then. Uh, uh, Normie Wallace uh, was well retired and a little bit crook and we used to catch up with him, a number of us, Paddy Donnelly from the BLF, Georgie Despard, one of our activists, myself and also uh, Malcolm McDonald. Um, and Mickey Lewis. Yep. Uh, we used to catch up every now and again. Um, Dave Cairn joined occasionally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and sober. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we, we, we used to have a good time catching up with Normie Wallace. It was fantastic, and we'd shoot the breeze. Anyway, we come up with this idea, I think encouraged mainly by Malcolm McDonald, that we'd have this uh, booklet to sum up some of the uh, things that we did in the past so that the future generations of uh, building workers would understand where a lot of these things come from. So, as you said, Ralph, the book was called Never Powerless. Uh, the other headline was The Builders' Labourers' Federation, Lessons for the 21st Century. And um, basically, um, we, took, we, we wanted people to know what was happening in the past. So, for a start, it had... And we talked about this at these lunches that we had with Normie Wallace... So it's been, a, in our view, a perennial problem for the union movement to pass on to new generations 
uh, of workers, how their working conditions and wages were achieved. Uh, many of the activist unionists has uh, bemoaned how younger workers take for granted the conditions and uh, the, they enjoy, or worse, believe it all comes from the goodness and good-heartedness of the boss. So uh, that, 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 yeah, that, that, that generated uh, the idea for the support for the booklet. Um, the the uh, industrial and political impact of the BLF, especially after World War II right into the 1980s, is a story that should be told often to uh, future building workers because the, their contribution of the BLF, along with other unions as well in the building industry, but particularly from a, a BLF point of view, uh, the workers uh, need to know how these the long struggles that uh, to win these working conditions uh, over very long campaigns uh, came about. So uh, the BLF and the other building unions uh, deserve due recognition for the establishment of many of these entitlements, which we all all building workers expect today, especially through the EBA process, and the. Uh, Particular uh, activities of leadership by uh, Norm Gallagher and Normie Wallace also needs to be remembered uh, because many of these gains were done by their political industrial uh, leadership uh, over many decades uh, from the uh, 60s, 70s and 80s right through. So uh, I think it's important that um, we acknowledge that um, in this, the second decade of the 21st century, that unions are still under pressure today. Um, back in the 50s and 60s, you had the penal powers, uh, the victory of the union movement with the Clary O'Shea case in 69 blunted the uh, attack of uh, the post-Menzies period with the employers against um, the union movement, blunted it. But by the time we got uh, around to uh, John Howard coming back into power, uh, in particular, we started seeing the first, second and third waves of industrial legislation to curtail unions under Peter Reith and right up until the work choices legislation in 2005, putting all that sort of uh, penal power stuff back into positions and curtailing what unions could do. And I think we need to recognise that, that nothing's really changed, that the thrust of the, the booklet is all about how we got all these better wages and conditions, but also the struggles to how, how we got them and more importantly, to understand politically, like the leadership of Norm Wallace and Norm Gallagher, that you have to have a political wider understanding of how the system works and that the bosses and Conservative governments in particular are always going to come after the union movement and people's wages and conditions. And we should say that the booklet is available online. Just look it up. It's Never Power Less. And uh, that booklet is available through the Labor History Group uh, on their website and a number of other websites, and we suggest you read it and also listen to Creatures of the Industry because some of the people that live through it also tell their stories. So, Malcolm, would you like to uh, just go through some of the issues and victories that building workers had through the period we're covering today? Well, it's my pleasure... Uh, I agree with uh, everything that Brian has said. I think also uh, any history which this one attempts to do does uh, highlight and give credit to Norm Gallagher, who was a household name uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, he died in 1999 at the age of 69. 
He had a career that did a great deal for the working class in general and in particular, of course, builders' labourers. As uh, Brian has said, uh, he had a, an assistant secretary to assist him in what he did. Uh, his name, of course, was uh, Norman Wallace. Now, it's five years, remarkably, since Norm died. And uh, before he died, of course, he did contribute substantially to uh, the BLF history, as has been named Never Powerless. Now, the conditions of employment that Norm uh, wrote about in Never Powerless uh, concerned superannuation, uh, the establishment of site allowances on building jobs, fares and travel, which uh, is something, of course, that is received by building workers, also uh, the support for Medibank, now Medicare, by builders' labourers, when it was under threat by the Fraser Liberal Government. Another condition it was uh, delayed workers' compensation payments, which was a very big problem in the building industry, and not only the building industry, everywhere else. Compensation make-up, portability of sick leave, paid sick leave, inclement weather payments, job amenities paid public holidays, portability of long service leave, supply of clothing and footwear, severance pay, health and safety and legislation concerning health and safety, man hoists, hard hats and job health and safety representatives. All of these were very important issues and all of them were won by the struggle of unionists of the past, and I agree entirely with what Brian said about the need for present, the present generation of building workers to fully understand how the conditions of employment that they have were arrived at, and it should never, ever be forgotten. Yep, and if you weren't part of winning it, don't be seen to be part of giving it away. Well, I think that's the whole thing, as Brian has said as well. The bosses always come after yeah. what the, what you've got. And it must be said, I think, that uh, when you consider the fact that trade unions today are not as strong as they were perhaps 20, 30 years ago, when a lot of these conditions were won, but one exception to that is the fact that the building trades and the CFMEU is a union that's still functioning and still winning wages and conditions for workers during this period when other unions or in other industries are certainly struggling. And when you had to look at the uh, wage schedule and a few other things, Malcolm, you really <laughs> had a heart attack. Well, <laughs> well, when you look at uh, some of the wage rates, yes. Um, <laughs> I'd have to agree that I'm quite jealous. <laughs> now, not only was the BLF and building workers generally involved in political industrial struggles, but they're also involved in social issues. And one of the social issues that uh, the BLF and, uh, let's say, was famous for, notorious for, was the Green Bands. And uh, that was a movement in the 70s uh, which had a huge impact on the landscape of this city and, and other cities in Australia. And, Dave, uh, we all got to live through that. 
Yeah, how lucky we are. Exciting time. Yeah, that's right. And still reverberating out in the lives of all of us around this table. Um, That notion of what came to be called later by historians of social movement unionism, basically, which is another way of saying solidarity doesn't end at the gate or the office door or the schoolyard fence. It actually carries over into the communities in which we live. And I guess when you look at the green bands and that idea of a social movement unionism, you you can see since the 70s until now and throughout history, but, but in the time we're considering... You know, you can see the gains that that the BLF and and other unions, especially in construction, made, how how those gains influenced uh, the economy and jobs. I mean, ATCO huts didn't used to exist. You know, the the footwear clothing. Uh, All of these things, all of the, the gains that our unions made for workers actually created jobs and industries. Um, Superannuation, the finance sector changed completely. I mean, we're the fourth largest fund in the world. Thousands of jobs that didn't exist before came into existence with the wins that our unions have. So the idea of our industrial activities affecting the social conditions in which we live uh, is demonstrable. With the green bands especially, the question of, of workers' democracy came up. I mean, do workers have the right to determine not only what happens on the job, but the effects of the work we do. If those effects, effects are, are, are wrong, uh, are bad, are unhealthy, we, of course, maintained, and I, I want to stress this, there was a united leadership across Victoria and New South Wales and the rest of the country around this stuff for a long time. And, uh, and, and our answer was yes, that when it comes to democracy, the employer is one citizen. And uh, we are the vast majority, what the kids now call the 99%. And in any economic democracy, which unions have always been the voice of, uh, the green bands were a pinnacle. They were an apex form of behaviour by working people because we were saying low-income housing in the inner-urban areas, parklands that children can play in, uh, you know, all of these beneficial social effects were our responsibility because the strong will always defend the weak. In our, in our political and industrial lives. And, and, and Dave, if I can just quickly add to the Green Bands list that you just started. So we, we bought into Saving Vic Market, the City Bars, Regent Theatre, you name all those buildings, uh, number one Collins Street, keeping the fa- facade there, the historical facade there when it was redeveloped. Um, they, they were just four or five of the city ones that, uh, that I remember from the 70s and 80s. And you Absolutely. were involved in some of that. Yeah, you know, as a rank and filer. Um, people like Brian and, uh, and, and Malcolm and others were, were leading, were in leadership positions. Uh, so if you look at the Vic Market, I mean, 6,000 jobs surrounded the Vic Market. And in 1971, when that ban went on uh, to protect and defend it and, and protect the stallholders and traders at the market, those 6,000 jobs were retained. The push will always be on for development and... Uh, you know, for more jobs. That's the nature of our industry. We've always got to defend the right of our, our members to work, so we'll always hunt down, unions will always hunt down that work and, and try to cooperate with all sectors in the community to make sure the jobs happen. But having said that, by the end of the 1970s, there were $3,000 million worth of building materials held up in green bands. Now, 
that led to problematic situations in our union and, and massive uh, ideological divides. But in around about nine or ten years after that, in the mid-70s, uh, we were all on the same side fighting the D-Reg anyway. <laughs> so I guess the thing is that, you know, the green bands and the sorts of bands that Brian talked about uh, were, were the means by which we created a conduit between the communities in which we lived and our, our work on site. And In other words, the solidarity of the community coming towards us and our solidarity flowing back towards the community. So the notion of unions as a force for economic democracy is encapsulated within the, the activities of the Green Bands by the BLF. Of course, when it comes to the Queen Vic market, you gentlemen were involved in uh, some lobbying of the Melbourne City Council to get some public recognition of how the Vic market was saved. Well, Unfortunately, yep. the plaque uh, doesn't mention the BLF. It just talks in very general terms and it's hidden down an alleyway, but never mind. Now, that's not quite right. That's, no, that's uh, not right. It's the BLF name, Builders Labor's Federation name, is on the plaque. But I would agree that um, the responsibility for uh, enabling the market to be able to not to be demolished was primarily, or in fact, almost totally, I guess, uh, because the BLF under Norm Gallagher and Norm Wallace put a ban on the demolition of the market. That saved the market. But there were other organisations involved as well. But anyway, it took how long, Brian, before the plaque was agreed to? Well, again, the, the seeking a plaque on, at, the, at the Vic market to recognise what the BLF did uh, was another subset of those gatherings we had around Normie Wallace. And the idea came out of that, as you know, Malcolm, to try and pursue that. I got the job uh, to pursue that through the Melbourne City Council and negotiations went for year on, year in uh, to eventually get a plaque with a set of words in it that recognised the BLF. Now, unlike Ralph, I don't mind recognising some of the uh, community groups that we work with. And by the way, I was in meetings with Norm Gallagher and representatives of the Vic Market um, market people over saving the Vic Market and so giving them recognition, because they came up and lobbied as well and explained their situation to us, um, having them mentioned on the plaque is no problem to me because they still recognise the major contribution of the BLF Green Band. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> I mean, if we look at the Norm Gallagher, eventually come to be known as the, the uh, Hardy Gallagher Park mm. down in, uh, in Carlton, uh, parkland opposite the public housing where the kids used to play was under threat. And uh, they approached the union. Norm went down with Mick Lewis. Um, Normie ended up doing 13, 14 days jail over that and uh, Mickey Lewis seven days jail over that green ban. That's right. Um, the, the first one in Australia uh, in the modern era. And it, it uh, was still called a black ban, as Norm said, and Jack Mundy always chided him about it in a very friendly way. That, uh, but Normie said, you know, when, when New South Wales come up with the idea of a green band, calling it a green band, that was a very positive thing. So I think that the green bands, uh, if, if you look at young people when they're deciding should they join a union and why would they, the green bands will invariably come up. It's something that captures the imagination of all working people because it does bring up this question of workers having the democratic right to determine what happens with their labour, whether it happens at all, the conditions under which it occurs. 
Just one other point, if we just re- return to the Victoria Market plaque. Oh, okay. I've, no, the the point I've, is... Peter saw point here. Because <laughs> I've got a picture of the plaque and... Uh, Let's just say the builder's labourers is given equal billing with the Brotherhood of St Lawrence, but never mind at the very end of the inscription. OK, but the point is, it wasn't easy for the builder's labourers to even get a name on the plaque. Oh, yes. It wasn't even easy to get a plaque about the saving of the Victoria that's right. market. That's that right. took that's how long? Five years, six yes. years. Yep. And that's the first the, approach that's to the, the Melbourne credit. City Council, Ralph, was knocked back by a former Lord Mayor. And he put obstacles in the path. And it was only after he left that position and a new Lord Mayor came to the office that it became possible for the, for the plaque to succeed. I'm giving you gentlemen credit for the achievement. I'm just, uh, let's say, less than impressed with the efforts of the Melbourne City Council to record history. Well, that's a better way of putting it, Ralph. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> But we still appreciate the fact, or we should, that there is a plaque. It does uh, record the saving by the BLF and other organisations, but in reality, predominantly the BLF of the iconic Victoria market. Now, let's just talk about some of the other things that are still around, and that is the list of achievements of the... uh, <clears throat> the union movement in the construction industry. And one of those which uh, I think is, to this day, the most important, which was an early win, and that was inclement weather, being paid for inclement weather, and not having to work, actually go home. That was taken away again uh, in the 60s, and then it had to be fought all over again and was won back in the, in the 70s to go back to the full value that had been in the award in the 60s. And uh, I still, to this day, say that the best thing in the award, even better than the money, was the inclement weather because that was all about the conditions you had to work in. And when you can control the conditions you work in, the sky's the limit because it all comes down to not just heat and rain and so on, but health and safety considerations like silica dust and all the rest of it. What do you reckon? Well, there's no doubt about that. And Norm, Norm Wallace does have a part of his contribution to the history on inclement weather. Uh, the first uh, inclement weather, as has been mentioned, was simply an entitlement of eight hours per month payment for inclement weather, which uh, entailed wind... It entailed other situations such as dust or cold, heat and, of course, rain. But uh, as Ralph said, in 1963, against union opposition, the employers successfully applied to the arbitration court to have the entitlement changed from inclement weather to rain only. And that meant, of course, that there were big losses for workers. Anyway, that, of course, um, led to union opposition... And uh, because of the struggles, particularly of, uh, or not only the BLF, but other unions as well, a full um, complement of uh, payments for any lost time through inclement weather was achieved once again. Of course, inclement weather is still an issue, as it always is, because it costs the boss money. 
but it's going to become an even bigger issue. So the relevance to the 21st century and beyond is even more focused, I think, on inclement weather than some of the other conditions that you've mentioned. Well, because of climate change. Yes, yeah. uh, uh, that's true. Absolutely. And, and, and can I just say, adding to what Malcolm said, that culture of the BLF and, and you know, what we now call the big unions, building and industrial unions, industry unions, um, of, of go out and do it. Go out and make it happen. And then get your negotiations happen. Don't wait back negotiating, trying to convince people of a good idea, and then act. Go out and act. So the BLF was renowned has been renowned, and now the CFMEU, of going out and taking the right and forcing the, the employers to adapt to that. So, you know, um, I remember workings in New South Wales with women in the industry. Again, it was, there was internal debate about that, but, but the idea of working people in and then, you know, the idea of the HOMA around safety, which led to the legislation. Go out, act... That will change the relationship of forces between our class and the, and, the, and the rulers and we can get the negotiations going, we can bring others in. And the same thing happened with the Green Bands. Uh, you know, the National Trust, we could bring them in later once the ban was effective. They couldn't have put the ban on. That didn't happen. So, you know, I think that idea of, of act, the relationship of forces change, then you can get your negotiation, you know, really powerful. Can I, can I just go back to... Um the, the reference to occupational health and safety uh, that uh, Malcolm made while talking about inclement weather and a few other things. But we should never forget that uh, after the Kane government came in in 1981 Two. or 82, uh, the building unions and the BLF in particular had a campaign for workers' comp improvements and also health and safety improvements. Uh, and you might remember we were going down to private health and, uh, insurance companies with, with guys in wheelchairs that weren't getting proper workers' comp payments and all that sort of stuff, occupying insurance buildings, marching down the street for occupational health and safety. So it took up until 2000 and, uh, 1985 when the Kane government put two quite progressive uh, packages of legislation, Improved Workers' Compensation and Occupational Health and Safety Act. 1985. Those two acts then created work, WorkSafe. Now, we've got problems with WorkSafe even today with their inspectorate and all that sort of stuff, but we have two acts that never existed before uh, 1985, uh, but they still had to be extracted even out of a Labor government to get it. But that was a key win by the Victorian building unions and led by the BLF. And again, to stress that legislation, I think 84, uh, it, it, it wouldn't have come about without the HOMA. Mm. Mm. That legislation, Ralph, sorry, yep. uh, that also included the election of health and safety officers oh, for the workers on the job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, against uh, strong opposition from the employers. Yes. And now, instead of opposing it, they just try to subvert it. But we won't go there just at the moment. <laughs> but 24-hour stoppages were, my memory, a, uh, a feature of the industry through the late 70s into the early 80s. For 24 hours, and we'll come back to that in just a second. You're listening to Creatures of the Industry on Community Radio 3CR. This is part two of an interview with the BLF History Group, which uh, is filling in for the Concrete Gang on their summer break. 
24-hour stoppages were, my memory, a feature of the industry through the late 70s into the early 80s. And I think, though, it probably started even earlier with uh, the failure of bosses to provide proper amenities on sites. And uh, there were a couple of organisers, including the BLF organisers, who in the city and down St Kilda Road were going on to jobs and if the amenities weren't up to scratch, people went home and the boss had 24 hours before they came back to fix it. So they went home again. It certainly was, despite what uh, was said in various agreements and in legislation and so on, it was certainly a much more effective way of making sure that people were able to get proper amenities on site. So you had somewhere to go and sit in the cool, in clean, dry conditions, get a cup of coffee and all the rest of it, have decent, clean toilets, have change rooms, all that stuff, because the boss saved money. And right through to the 80s, there were still long arguments about those sorts of issues. But the 24-hour is notorious, but it was bloody effective. Yeah, Norm Wallace uh, mentions, of course, amenities. One of them was that, um, <laughs> you, you know, during the period that you're talking about, there wasn't even toilet paper on some jobs. And uh, the excuse given was that the workers might pinch it. <laughs> toilet paper, yeah. But in 1945, the employers didn't need to provide even change sheds unless there were more than 15 workers on site. But anyway, by 1959... The employer was forced by the award to supply chain sheds if more than 10 workers were employed. But anyway, over the years, of course, there's been such a great improvement. But that's another problem. Workers in the industry now are able to use these great facilities, but uh, it's not a good thing that they don't necessarily understand. But in order for them to enjoy those uh, facilities today, there was a lot of struggle over the past by unionists of the past. Well, just on the issue of the 24, I think one of the organisers, let's say, well-known for enforcing uh, amenities was the late, great Terry O'Connor. And Terry uh, walked on a job any hour of the day, and if it wasn't up to scratch, there was a meeting and people went home. And that was common approach to things. Now, of course, even though there has been uh, changes in the legislation by... The Albanese government, uh, that is still an offence under the Act. And let's be blunt, when the Rudd government got rid of work choices and introduced the new legislation in 2007, I think it was? No, 2009. 2009. Then it was a case of the only right to strike was when you had a breakdown and applied for a right to strike under enterprise bargaining legislation. And that seems to me to be the big difference between then and now. All those restrictions, you know, you can sidestep a few of them, but those sort of restrictions are still in place for building workers in particular under the legislation. And I think also recognising as part of our history, part of our history is fraught. I mean, one of the first things to go at the deregistration was the homer. It became illegal to pay the employer, even if the employer wanted to pay, he was unable to legally. So he was disallowed to pay. So I think it was that effective. That's why, of course, they moved on it. 
though equally too, I can think of a few instances in the uh, post-DREG period where, let's just say, there's more than one way to get away yes. with it. Yep. Anyway, gentlemen, the sorts of long-standing disputes around inclement weather, travel allowance, all those sorts of things, normally Wallace was a great participant in that sort of detail, but he also my memory, was very, very uh, pleased to acknowledge some of the, the breakthrough campaigns which are still with us and are still working very effectively, like superannuation, like redundancy and portable long service leave. Those big three are still a huge benefit. Yes? Systemic change, yeah. Look, superannuation, the history of it and union history shows that the Builders' Labourers' Federation... Uh, was the major union in the construction industry to win superannuation in the industry. Now, it wasn't only in the building industry that superannuation was fought for. It was ACTU policy to try and establish it in all industries. And the BLF was the leader in the building industry. Now, I think it was 1996 or 1992 that the Keating government legislated for universal superannuation. Now, the facts are that without the contribution of trade union movement, in the case of the building unions, the Builders' Labourers' Federation in particular, establishing superannuation in the first place, that allowed for the legislation of the condition for all workers in Australia. And that is quite historic. Not understood, unfortunately, by a lot of people. And we're coming up to an anniversary the establishment of building union superannuation, BUS, run by Jacques Martin back in those days. 1983. Yep. We have got a contribution there that has stood the test of time. 2023. Well, and by the way, the superannuation paid to building workers is $265 per week or 10.5% of ordinary time earnings whichever is higher from the 1st of July 2023. Now, that will increase to $280 per week or 11% of ordinary time earnings. Can I illustrate your point about uh, what Keating did in '92, bringing in universal superannuation? Uh, when it, I mean, BUSS, the original uh, building industry super fund, was established in 1983 and Jax Martin was managing it. The ACTU, I think... Gary Weaverman is involved and a few other people, they were dedicated to make sure that the BUSS and then eventually CBUS succeeded. Now, if you might remember, every shop steward and every organiser was asked to go and sign up every contractor with individual contracts for them to pay into Building Union Super. And that took a lot of time and effort out in the field because what the ACTU needed is to show any incoming ALP federal government that superannuation could work. Because the building industry scheme did work over 10 years, it made it possible politically for Keating to do what he did. So it's not just done in isolation, the legislation. It was done off the back of the success of, of BUSS and the ACTU insisting that we went out and signed up all those individual contractors over many years. I'd like to add too, it's unfortunate that, that as successful as it's been, we still often hear even our own side refer to the employer payment into our super funds as the employer contribution. Whereas, in fact, all the employer is doing is performing the task of, instead of paying that 
that percentage of our wage to us, it goes into a fund. And I think nothing's perfect. I think we do need to go back and readdress that fact that this is part of the workers' wage. It was defined as such when it first came in by the Commission. And why is that important? Well, because, unfortunately, there is often a lack of any sense of workers' participation and control of that capital base. That's demonstrable. Most of our fellow workers in unions across the, the labour movement wouldn't be able to tell you where a lot of the investment is going on without super. You know, we're, we're getting it now drift into the armaments industry. It's been in fossil fuel, you know, so I, I think that struggle continues is what I'm saying. And I think we need to get rid of this idea of an employer contribution. The employer's performing a bureaucratic task to take part of our wage and put it into a, a collective socialised fund. It's socialised capital. And that's something we can be really proud of. We've actually created a sector of the economy that's owned, well, owned by the people, not yet democratically controlled. Well, it's now 40 years, which is what I was getting to. There's going to be a history written about CBUS because a lot of that stuff is going to be lost. Because, as you quite correctly said, the Commission made a decision to give an amount of, of wages to the fund. So that's why people talk about wage package, which is your wage plus your super. And yet, in this day and age, there are still probably hundreds of millions of dollars going west into bosses' pockets instead of to the funds where they're supposed to go because that's the wages of workers. You were saying, Ralph, are you, that there's still employers just not paying the no. proper amounts of super into, yeah. in, there is not into, into the entitlements of workers. It's wage yeah. theft. Yeah. There's it, wage it, theft it's everywhere. It's acknowledged by the Australian Tax Office and also by the, um, the federal government's Auditor-General. Every year they do a report, and the report says there's billions missing every year, and the ATO only recovers about 100 to 200 million of that from recalcitrant uh, employers. But uh, it's a lot of superannuation... Billions not paid in for their retirement fund. And part of the history, I think, that we should reflect on is that in the construction industry, we always had better compliance than anyone else because we wanted monthly payments. Mm. And it's only now getting legislated across the board. Really, a lot of super uh, accounts only have to be updated once every 12 months. And I can think of a whole lot of experiences with people I know in the family and so on, where the money was supposed to be paid in once every 12 months and never got paid in. And they're losing any dividends on that. Yes, of course. But we were the worst people under the sun, if I remember correctly, because we went out and enforced it and people sat in the shed if their payments weren't up to scratch. It's another thing about the union funds or funds that the unions are involved in. Conservative governments have been doing their best ever since it started to weaken those funds and um, at any rate, so far, they've managed to, I think, push back those uh, attempts. Yep, and I would hope that, because uh, there will be another Conservative government, that we can hang on again because, as we reflected earlier, every time a new Conservative government comes in, what do they do? They have a Royal Commission to attack the construction unions. That's right, every time. Every time. Now, just some of the other issues you raised earlier, what, looking back, would you reckon is the principal wins in terms of 
that period of time, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, where Normie Wallace was Assistant Secretary of the BLF, first to Paddy Malone and then Norm Gallagher. Uh, Norm Gallagher had actually been the Federal Secretary of the Union since, I think, 1961, and then he became, when Paddy passed, the uh, Victorian Secretary as well in about 1970, I think it was. That's correct, yeah. So that whole period was a period of massive change, and builders' labourers went from being the add-ons in the industry to becoming actually the fighting force that led the conditions in that. It wasn't done alone, and it wasn't done uh, against other unions. It was done in cooperation with other unions through the BIG. And what do you reckon, looking back now, is the principal uh, changes that are still with us and which were absolutely key? Well, I'll kick off quickly with Medibank that became Medicare. I definitely recollect from being a a rank-and-file member of the BLF in 1975-76 getting called to meetings uh, at delegates' meetings about we had to defend Medibank from Malcolm Fraser. He'd already had a... Sir John Kerr had sacked the Whitlam government that brought in Medibank and one of his first policies was that he wanted to gut, if not kill, Medibank. So I was on the Melbourne Underground in early 1976 and the BLF and the building unions called a massive demonstration against the Fraser government to protect Medibank. So the whole city and some of the inner suburb building sites, there was thousands in the streets in early 76 fighting to defend Medibank. I remember marching off with at least uh, 500 building workers from uh, the underground rail loop part that I was on. Uh, But you might find this a little bit surprising. There was a photo of Malcolm Fraser and the ACTU leader at the time, a man called Bob Hawke, where Bob Hawke said that we should be able to work together and was making a little bit of a play down. In fact, if you remember, when we all had the strikes at the end of 75, over the mass strikes we had over the sacking of the Whitlam government, he started to say that we can calm down now. We've had our protest. There's been a democratic election, blah, blah, blah. And then he had a photo of him getting... So anyway, we had this big demonstration. I'll never forget this. A little bit of fun on the side. We went to the ACTU headquarters in Latrobe Street at the time and got into Bob Hawke's office. Uh, I got told this story later by others who uh, were in the office and apparently uh, his drawers were rifled. They found his cigar box and threw that out in the window into the street and that night on the news, Hawke wanted his cigars back. <laughs> so that was apparently that's what happened uh, in his office at the time. Well, that was a little trip down memory lane. Um, <laughs> Can he I also just... had a bust of himself <laughs> at the ACTU uh, building. Burke's ACTU oh. store was all going to save us a fortune. It was going to be bigger than Harvey Norman and uh, give us all these white goods and home furnishings at prices that couldn't be matched by anyone. Anyway, his bust was uh, disappeared and it was last seen um, in public hanging by a noose at the Collingwood Town Hall painted yellow. But we won't go there. <laughs> That's right. Someone who was involved told us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, that's right. But the other thing too, just to illustrate Brian's point, at that time, around 76, in the lead up to 77 when the legislation was enacted around 45 DNA, the secondary boycott laws, that was one of the major responses from capitalist organisations through Fraser and their politicians in answer to things like the Grand Bands, $3,000 million tied up in building materials alone. That 
alliance between Green and Red, Environment and Labor, was that powerful. And it was one of the things that spurred on Fraser. Now, Hawke had separate meetings unknown to the ACTU executive with Fraser. And as Brian said, said to Fraser that he thought they could work together around some things. And if you look at what, what it was, it was not just 45 DNE, it was the IRB, the Industrial Relations Bureau. Now, if you look at the Industrial Relations Bureau, you'll see Work Choices, the ABCC, it's all in there. So it just shows you how, when they lock in, they lock a bull terrier on your throat. They will not let go. We've got to be the same. And I think part of that is workers understanding and knowing about this sort of history. Hawke came to power on a commitment that he'd get rid of 45D and he instead he used it against the confectioners, if you remember. I've got the letter at home that he wrote to the employers backing them in, saying that he disagreed with the union activities. So, I mean, these are part of our history. It was a great period of ideological formation where you can see neoliberalism beginning to roll out. And, in fact, I think that legislation was also used against the plumbers' union. In 87. Yep. A quarter of a million dollar fine they got. That's right. And in those days, unions didn't have a lot of assets and had nearly broke them. Yeah. Just in relation to your question about how things have changed and improved, I was just looking here at the figures for fares and travel. In 1938, fares for travel were sixpence per day, and you got that if you worked a 12-mile radius from the GPO. If you work within the 12-mile radius, the first threepence for fares was paid by the employee. Anyway, to cut a long story short, after years of struggle and negotiation, the travel allowance for construction workers today is $52.50. Incoming payments. Now, that started off as a $20 payment for severance with a couple of employers. And, of course, it's spread. Anyway, today it's $140 per week. From the 1st of October 2023, $160 per week paid into EcoLink income protection, trauma insurance and portable sick leave are also paid into EcoLink. And originally the award provision was called follow the job allowance and you got so much an hour in your hourly rate which was to help cover you while there were periods of unemployment between jobs because you're on eight hours and still on eight hours, but nowadays you uh, don't have the same prospect of basically starting a job and knowing you only had eight hours and then the next day you had to go looking for work. So massive change, Malcolm. You've picked it up in one. Well, long service leave. Workers on construction in general never got long service leave because they weren't working with one employer for long enough. Anyway, with the uh, struggle to have portability of long service leave, where the employers pay for the amount of service by the individual worker into a central fund, workers uh, in the building industry can now have long service leave. In fact, they get 13 weeks after 10 years. Now, that, the legislation, I think I'm right in saying, providing 13 weeks after... Uh, 15. Yeah. 15 is after 15 years for most workers under the legislation for long service leave... Whereas in the building industry, of course, uh, it's 13 weeks after 10 years. And you can get it for seven years now. Seven years you can get pro rata. Oh, the pro rata, yeah. Yeah, because of the, the people coming and going out of the industry. So we got it down to that a few years ago. Johnny Cummins led that discussions. And, of course, the nature of work has changed. But basically it's changed because in this state, in this city, we've had a boom for 20 years. Longest you know, ever. And the longest ever, bigger than the gold rush, and that was 
when Melbourne was considered to be one of the richest cities in the world and people came here to work, not just pan gold. But what we've had in the last 20 years is in fact a, um, a boom which we've had to take advantage of because we won't see its like again probably, but for future generations they're going to be able to continue to get decent wages and good conditions. And that's really what we're talking about in terms of the 21st century because we're already 23 years into it and time does pass quick but there's still a long way to go before some of our great-grandchildren get to enjoy the benefits. Can, can I just go back to Normie Wallace's particular reference in, in the little booklet about portable sick leave? When I started working at the BLF, there was no redundancy fund or no super at the time, but there was the portable long service leave scheme. And what you got when you you had to register with the scheme as an individual worker, and then you got a little card, a little card to carry with you. Normie Wallace was very particular at the organisers' meetings to insist that um, the organisers and shop stewards not only check for union tickets, which was a big issue at the time, no ticket, no start, and people being in the union, but he really wanted us to also concentrate on making sure that building workers were registered with the portable long service leave individually with their cards. So check two things he used to insist on. I remember him always insisting on that. Not only the union ticket, but the portable long service leave ticket. And now, of course, you've got to check on about four tickets, (laughs) plus the uh, appropriate... Certificate of competency to do a number of tasks, but hell, the world's become more bureaucratic. Well, that's that's why the nature of the. Uh, I was very pleased to hear the other day that CFMU has now got nearly over five hundred delegates and shop stewards on the job. Their role now is probably more important than ever yep. in terms of checking those kind of things. As the boom has gone on, a whole lot of people uh, who would never have been part of major commercial construction and major civil construction are now being sucked in and they want to continue their, uh, let's say, their housing, domestic housing industry standards into our industry. And it's been a fight to try and bring those people up to what is required. There's another condition, of course, uh, paid sick leave. Uh, there was a time uh, up until 1975 when uh, workers in the building industry weren't receiving paid sick leave. And you didn't get paid public holidays either. No, that's right. No paid public holiday. And for those who have been enjoying some shutdown weekends recently, you've not only got your paid public holiday for Cup Day, but you've also got your RDOs, which really is, to my mind, a huge advantage compared to where we were. Uh, By the way, in relation to that, I can't give the credit for that to the building industry. That was one of the Alterna Complex over a very, very long, an 18-month struggle. Yeah. It involved uh, sit-ins on site, workers paying for other workers while they were on strike. It was an enormous struggle that eventually went to the Arbitration Commission and it did arrive at the concept of uh, a 38-hour week. It was the first reduction in working hours since 1947. That was in the early 80s. And, of course, as a result of that decision... All unions were able to negotiate for the roster day off once a month, including the building industry. But of course, for those of us who remember, 1986 was supposed to be the introduction of the 36-hour week. We're going to have the second reduction from 38 to 36. Grocon had already signed up. In fact, I think they'd done the Rialto job on 36. 
Not that you got the 36, the second RDO, but you certainly got paid for working that second RDO. But in 86, we were going to get the major change to bring us into line with the Altona Area Agreement, a nine-day fortnight. And what did we get instead? Deregistration. Yes, that's right. That's and right. it took us to 2000, 2001 to finally nail down that second reduction in working hours. So that's within the 21st century. And people probably go on about it, but really, we haven't had it that long and it's been a struggle to hold on to it. And they're the struggles that have been mentioned here for the future. Conservative governments will again come on the attack from the point of view of taking away conditions of employment that we've been talking about here. So it's going to be incumbent on the present generation and future generations of building workers to defend what they've got and what's been won in the past. Well, you don't have to be a Conservative government. I mean, there's been some credit given to the Albanese government at the moment. They got rid of the ABCC. But they've also made some changes and are proposing even more changes to the IR laws. But they're still having a special sideshow of limiting what building unions can do compared to the other workers in terms of collective activity and collective bargaining. Well, that, if you don't mind me saying so, brother, is two things. One, a bloody insult to building construction workers, but two, a recognition of what has gone on and the ability of building construction workers to have a fight and to actually try, regardless of the administration in Canberra, to improve and maintain conditions. So it's a backhanded uh, <laughs> compliment, I guess. I don't think there's any doubt that the Victorian branch of the CFMEU under very difficult circumstances, have certainly made a good fist of defending what uh, has been won in the past and also, in, despite everything, still managing to uh, make improvements. Yep. Well, we came out of deregistration and the civil war, let's be blunt about it, the civil war that went on uh, between unions, between the bosses and, and unions, all that shit that went on through the late 80s, early 90s, we got back on track and we have done the job, I reckon. And I think it's an absolute uh, credit to everyone who participated in that struggle. What you're raising now, of course, is a subject for another time, I think. Yes. You're talking really about the problems that uh, arose during the Accord, where unions well, were effectively yes. you know, uh, set uh, to compete for membership amongst each other. And it wasn't a very good time. But again, I think that that's something we ought to look at at another time, Ralph. I would heartily agree with you that we do need to do a review of the Accord, the role of the ACTU, its officials, the Hawke government and all the rest, because when you can have a federal government taking action against the Food Preservers Union, at the same time as I've taken action against airline pilots, hardly one of the most militant organisations going round, it just shows you what the politics of the 1980s was, and I think you're 100% right. And maybe, gentlemen, we can come back and do another show all about that. That'd be good. So we'll finish up at this point. Thank you very much for your participation, Malcolm, Dave, Brian, and this will be part of the uh, summer series for the Concrete Gang, and there'll also be an interview that was done with Normie Wallace, back in 2015, and well done to Bob Mancourt and Shirley Winton and Andy Wallace for getting that on tape because that showed a little bit of foresight. And uh, people will enjoy, I'm sure, 
listening to the man himself talk about some of these issues but also talk about his own incredible life story. The fact that he uh, survived the Second World War is a story in itself. Oh, yeah. He was a boy soldier in Z-Force. In Z-Force. And we'll give people an opportunity over the summer season to listen to all of this because I think it's well worth it. And uh, depending on how long the Concrete Gang uh, stay on holidays, there might be a few more episodes to get in as well. So again, folks, thank you very much for listening to Creatures of the Industry. Summer season, covering the Concrete Gang's absence. And for the BLF History Study Group, thank you very much indeed. And uh, we need some more recruits and we'll... Uh, do some more work, yeah? Too Thank right. you. Too right. Thank you. Thanks. Good morning. Thank you for listening to Creatures of the Industry Summer Specials, covering for the Concrete Gang during their summer break. We will be resuming some more summer specials over the months of January and February. Please tune in to the podcast, 3cr.org.au forward slash Cotty, C-O-T-I, or get on to one of the Apple Podcasts or other similar apps and have a listen. You have been listening to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews about the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.